Today the reading is um, from Matthew, the second chapter. We're going to go from verse 1 through 12. And it can be found in the Pew Bible on page 681 to start. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, see, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they sent, were sent on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, good morning. My name's Josh. It's a joy to gather with you this morning. It's kind of fun being uh, the, the church where uh, kids and grandkids come to visit. I've been in like young people churches where like no one's there around the holidays because they're all visiting family, so it's fun to be on the, the other end of that. Welcome, those who are traveling and uh, joining us this morning. <clears throat> well, we have uh, backyard chickens. They've made the sermon several times. Uh, my my son Johnny, who's six, he's our prim the primary chicken farmer in our, in our family, and uh, I'm I'm indoctrinating him to to want to be a farmer when he grows up, and uh, so yeah, we love our chickens, and our chickens are very well loved. Uh, they're they're very socialized. <laughs> if, if chickens can be socialized, they're not really scared of us anymore, and they know that when Johnny comes outside into their area, uh, he comes bearing good gifts, like water or food or kitchen scraps or something like that. And uh, they, it's a great combo with toddlers, like picky eaters and chickens, like, you know, just all the, all the scraps go. But the toddlers don't eat the chickens, Will. Uh, Johnny just slayed us last week. There was a moment where he was just, uh, he said, Mom, I, I need to go outside and get some alone time in the hammock. Uh, it was a few, a few weeks ago. I have a picture of him there. And so he, he took a pillow and a blanket and was just trying to get to the hammock. But the chicken saw Johnny 
and came running. And uh, one, he didn't have anything other than just his presence at this point, but they, they apparently still were trying to hang out with him. Uh, so they just wanted to be near their, their six-year-old chicken farmer. And I tell that story uh, because um, even though it's not the right animal, <laughs> uh, the, the, the chickens show us, I think, what, what uh, the text is trying to show us, which is when Jesus comes as the, as the shepherd king, his people come running, just like the chickens come running when Johnny walks outside. Jesus was born as the king, as the ruler of God's people, who would also shepherd God's people, as the, the prophecy there from Micah says. Uh, and so his birth is, is both a comfort to some, and it's an invasion uh, to others. It's an invasion of the, kingdom, uh, of the kingdom of the world by the kingdom of God. And uh, depending on where you line up, it could be the best news you've ever heard, or it could be the worst news. And so the contrast between Herod <clears throat> and the wise men in this passage kind of show us two postures towards Jesus, the, the king shepherd, the shepherd king. Uh, and I think that we can extrapolate to pretty much all of humanity. These are the two postures uh, that, that we can have towards, towards Jesus. So going to kind of walk through it, look at, look at Herod, look at the shepherd. Verse 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. So this is the scruffy part. Well, there's several scruffy parts, but the scruffy part we're looking at today in the scruffy Christmas series is that the Magi are kind of the last people you would think to show up at the birth of the King of the Jews. Uh, they, they were the last people you would think that would be anticipating the birth of Jesus with joy as the, as, as the life-changing event that it, that it was. Uh, they're not characters you'd, you'd expect to see. Uh, it, it's kind of like watching Lord of the Rings and Jim Carrey shows up. You're like, wait a minute, this is like a mashup of stories. I don't think you, you belong there. You can take that picture down. He's kind of creepy. And, uh... But I've just been so intrigued by the, uh, the Magi this week. Uh, where, you know, they're astrologers, those who study the stars. They're magicians, maybe wizard. Do they practice the dark arts? Like what kind of juju were they involved in? And we don't know much about them except what the text says, which is that they pay attention to, to stars. Uh, back then, there was a belief that skies reflected momentous events on the earth, typically momentous events surrounding the birth and death of kings. So they were excited at this new star that showed up. And I just think it's beautiful that God was meeting them in ways that they'd understand to invite them to Jesus they probably did not have the Jewish scriptures, or if they did, they probably didn't think uh, that they were like, exclusive or like the, you know, the, only, the only religion or anything. They weren't uh, ethnically Jewish um, by birth. But again, I think we can look at the Magi and see the path that I think every single person needs uh, to, to go on, the journey that all of us need to take if we're going to receive Jesus as good news. So three things for you to consider uh, about the Magi uh, this morning. The first is that they were, they were searching. Uh, they were searching for more. They were hungry. Their eyes were up. They were looking for something outside of themselves, for things that mattered, uh, something bigger 
than them. And you see this over and over and over again. The, the, the people, I've seen this in my own life, the people that seem furthest away from Jesus, maybe culturally or religiously, sometimes are way closer than you might think because they're spiritually hungry. This is the whole, you know, kind of the one way to see the, the, the Jesus people movement, the Jesus revolution, you know, is people who were outside the church and rebellious and, you know, all this stuff, but they were looking for something true and beautiful and good. I experienced this with a buddy uh, back in Grand Rapids who was an atheist, and I loved hanging out with him because more than most people, even, even a lot of church people, he was hungry for the life that was truly life, as scriptures would say. In fact, that was why he was an atheist. He was like looking for something more. And he had actually grown up in the church and in that experience he was convinced that the life that was truly life was not found there. The answers weren't found there. His parents were both pastors and they were, in his words, anxiety machines. (laughs) Which is a little harsh, but just kind of rigid with religious anxiety to try to get things Right, and then his first daughter was born with severe disabilities, and his parents just did not have the space of soul to interact with his disabled daughter as she is, as she was. Um, They would kind of pray these awkward, heavy-handed prayers about healing and make unfortunate inferences about, you know, his lack of faith or whatever. So he had rejected Christianity, as he had experienced it, and was literally, I think this is kind of the religion du jour, if you will, the religion of the day, he was making up his own, where there's like a capital U universe that was this all-accompanying, all-encompassing force or power, and then there was, get this, a way of life that aligned with how the universe was meant to work. You know, so many questions, like, meant to work by who? You know, like, anyways, we had great conversations. And he's a guy, he, he would sacrifice for this way of life. Like, he would, he would put his daughter in a bike trailer and bike to the grocery store in the middle of West Michigan winter because he thought using muscles is better than motors and fresh air was good for his daughter and stuff like that. And there was a turning point. I could talk about this guy a lot. We had a lot of fun conversations. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the turning point in our relationship was when I was just kind of rambling about how brilliant I thought Jesus was. Like, we were past the point of, like, where I was, like, trying to evangelize him. I mean, he, you know, I'd shared the gospel. He knew the stuff. So we're, we're just guys talking. And I was just, like, rambling about how I think Jesus is the most brilliant person ever to walk the earth. <clears throat> and how his teaching makes so much sense of life. Like, I think I was specifically talking about the whole, uh, you know, plank in your eye, speck in your, your neighbor's eye passage. And just how brilliant that teaching is. How it just kind of doesn't let anybody off the hook. Like if you're a judgy, want to call people out, you got to look at the plank in your eye. If you're like, I never want to talk to anyone about their problems ever because I want to keep the peace. It's like, well, you kind of are supposed to and love talk about the speck. I'm not trying to preach on that passage. But I could tell it was landing with him. And he kind of was like quiet and went away and texted me a couple of days later and was like, well, I guess I have to follow Jesus now. What, what's next? Discipleship? And he was just hungry for truth as it was revealed in Scripture. Jesus says later in the gospel that blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. It's one of the Beatitudes, those strange one-liners that Jesus 
gives in the Sermon on the Mount, where the theme of kind of all of them is that it's like the people you think, or the, the last people you think would get into the kingdom of, of God uh, would be in there. And it's the hunger and thirst for righteousness idea. It's for like those people that are like never, they're kind of grumpy because they're never satisfied like as the world as it should be. They're never satisfied with the brokenness of the world and they're just looking for things to be made right. Those are the blessed ones because they will be satisfied by the king coming to set all things right if you follow it, which is what you do if you're hungry. If you're hungry, what do you do? You, you make a sandwich. You go to a restaurant. You go to the grocery store. You get up, go where the food is. You give up money and time and energy to get food. That's the second thing we see in the wise men, which is that they leave what they know and they travel into the unknown in, in search for truth, for goodness, for beauty, for the thing that they're longing for. They head out traveling in a time when you could easily die or get robbed traveling without all the modern conveniences we have for our traveling. And they journey to Jesus. And it's a journey, the journey to Jesus and the journey with Jesus is not safe in the way we'd probably think. I mean, he said himself, in this life you will have what? <laughs> Tribulations. You know, but take heart, he's overcome the world. We follow Jesus, we get in, we pursue Jesus into seasons of life, into situations that we probably would not have picked, or situations we can't manage or control. To obey Jesus when it hurts, when it's scary, when it doesn't, doesn't make sense financially. All throughout his ministry, Jesus is calling people out of what they've known out of their old way of doing life, their old normal. He's telling the rich young ruler to sell everything and come follow him. He calls a, a woman with a messy relationship history with men to you know, stop trading sex for rent. He, you know, and you know, more, more broadly says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. Here's what I'm saying. I think it's so profound that in the Magi, in the earliest days of Jesus' life on earth, we see people kind of like going all in. From, the early, from his birth, he's causing people to radically disrupt and reorder their lives around him, to turn from what they were doing and turn to him. And what happens when they finally find Jesus? Look at verse 10. On coming to the house, they saw the star. They, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened up their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I was just struck by how they got to the end of their journey and they were, they were overjoyed. Just like the, the, the simplicity, the childlike delight of this. I mean, they, they, they didn't sh show up like after a journey of drudgery, you know, like hungry people hacking through the wilderness, you know, and then like expecting a pat on the back, you know, like look at us, look what we did to get here, Jesus. No, this is like people, you know, surviving on nuts and berries and making it to a buffet. Like they were overjoyed, finally, the, the king they were looking for. And they come bearing gifts. 
very expensive gifts that would have cost you know, tens of thousands of dollars adjusted for 2,000 years of inflation. They joyfully lay these gifts. They, they opened up their treasures at the feet of the child king, and they bowed down before this little baby. Or you know, wasn't, he was probably a couple years old. And this is the third thing that we see in the Magi in their journey to Jesus, is that they joyfully sacrifice and surrender to the king, to the shepherd king. And again, you, this is like the, the little like, first example of what we see over and over again throughout Jesus' life on earth. Their sacrifice, surrender to King Jesus, but it comes from a place of joy, a place of lightness, uh, this posture that says, finally, what I've been looking for, like take it all. My all-time favorite parable of Jesus is from Matthew 13, where it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The wise men, these foreigners, outside God's chosen people, are the first ones in, in the story of Jesus' time on earth to sacrificially leave stuff behind and draw near to Jesus. Later, when he begins his earthly ministry, Jesus will do the, the same thing. He'll call people to leave their, leave their nets and their tax collector booths or their you know, terrorist resurgence planning like Simon the Zealot and... Uh, Learn the way of love. Learn the way of sacrifice. So in the scruffiness of these astrologer, magician, Gentile pagans, kneeling in joy with costly treasures before the child's shepherd king, we see the first example of the kind of response that I think Jesus demands, the kind of response that is required for us to receive Jesus as the gift that God sent him to be for us. <clears throat> but Herod shows us the other response, verse three. Look back up in verse three. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. He didn't know about any other king of the Jews except himself. Herod was the Roman-appointed king over the Jewish people. Uh, Caesar, the you know, the high king set up little mini kings over the various regions that he conquered. And, and so Herod, as someone who has money and power, probably an eye to move up the ranks in the Roman hierarchy. And his one job was to maintain order, keep the Jews under control of the Roman Empire. And so he was a, he was a tyrant he was there to keep order, and to hear about another king was a direct threat, not only to the status quo and the order, but also his like, own way of life, his own plans, maybe even to life itself, like he could be killed or assassinated if he didn't deliver. It's just crazy that Herod, who was called Herod the Great because he built, he built the temple, he built lots of things, he was all about the greatness of his name. Herod the Great... <laughs> was disturbed and felt threatened by the birth of this little baby. This little baby who, without doing a single thing, could summon magi from far away. The magi announce 
to the existing power structures of the day that a new king has arrived. On one hand, you just gotta love how God can't not have the good news announced. Like he's, he's getting it announced to people from the get-go. But we often wonder, or I wonder, or did in the past at least, why didn't people like Jesus? Like he's love made flesh. He's God with us. If he's here to save people from their sins and, and just love people, why was he brutally murdered, <clears throat> executed? Well, we see the answer in Herod's response because Jesus as king is a violation to the status quo, the established order, the power structures of his day. It was a collusion between the religious power, power structures and the Pharisees and the military political power structures of the Roman Empire that led to the cross. So the options, it seems, are surrender, sacrifice to King Jesus, or it's violence. Ryan <clears throat> preached on this a couple weeks ago, poor guy, his first sermon was about genocide, but he did a great job. But in verse 16 of chapter two, it said, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. <clears throat> Starting with the scruffy events around Jesus' birth, there are these two responses, joyful surrender or violence and rejection. Can we just embrace the horror that people wanted to kill Jesus from his earliest days on the earth? One of the biggest tragedies, I think, uh, in the U.S. church church in the U.S. or the West or whatever, is that we've created this narrative where there's a, there's a way of being a Christian that would accept Jesus as our Savior, as our get-to-heaven card or get-out-of-hell card, a loving guide to encourage us, but then not surrender to his authority as king, follow him as our king <clears throat> sacrificially. But you might say, well, how does that lead to violence? I'm not trying to kill Jesus. I, th I think he was a good teacher. And I want, you, I want to invite you to consider that when we divorce believing in Jesus as Savior from following him as the king, I believe it does violence to his body, the church. When there are people who might call themselves Christians because they believe you know, mentally, they, they mentally assent to a fact that like Jesus died for my sins, but then practically on the ground, functionally in the, the days and minutes and hours of our lives, when we functionally re reject him as king, as Lord, I, I think you see Jesus' body on the earth, which is the church, like locally and you know, more broader hurt. You see churches get full of boring, bitter, anxious groups of people that aren't that different from any other civic association just trying to gather around community and helping others. I'll probably remember for the rest of my life a conversation I had at my time as a pastor in my first church, fresh out of seminary, 
we were getting ready to do VBS, <clears throat> and I was meeting with a woman who is kind of like the matriarch of all kids programming. And unrelated to VBS, she just starts telling me that she never sits on that side of the sanctuary because three years ago at VBS, so-and-so said or did this thing to her, and so she just doesn't even go over there, and that's where so-and-so sits. Week after week, harboring this bitterness, feeling justified and wounded. Now, there's a lot we could be sad about just about that woman's experience, like holding on to bitterness, holding on to wounds, as they say, is like drinking poison and trying to hurt the other person. It's not good for you. But think about, think about the church as a whole. What does that do for the fellowship of the church? What does that do to a new person coming to the church where you got like people avoiding each other? What does that do to a new member getting involved in ministries that are being run by bitter, anxious people? I saw a, a, a woman get saved, a new Christian there, and start to befriend an older woman who had been in church her whole life but was like, wound tight with anxiety and was like dumping her anxiety on this new believer rather than showing her how Jesus can lead us to peace. It was so sad. Like we disciple, we want people to get saved and join our church, but what will we disciple them into? You know, there's a, many churches I think can wither and die because we, we, they become a, a democratic organization for the people, by the people, rather than what? what? What's the structure that Jesus gives us? A monarchy under King Jesus where we're all following him together. It's a little heavy for Christmas Eve, sorry. But I just wonder if maybe some of us are here today, back in church for the first time in years or because grandma wants you here, and you're carrying baggage of what Christians have said and done to you over the year. And if that's you, thank you for your courage of giving it another shot of showing up. And I just wanna in invite you back uh, to walk with us here at Carl Road. Like my, my hope, my vision, my dream, my prayer for us is that we'd be a people who joyfully gather and unite under King Jesus and follow his way. We will hurt each other. I'm not saying we're not gonna say uh, unintelligent, hurtful things to each other. Uh, but Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, Go to him, show him your fault. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. That's like a clear command from Jesus, black and white. That, how many of us practice? What, what would it be like if we cultivated the space of soul to hear when we've hurt others and ask for forgiveness? What would that do to our friendship? How would that set us apart from you know, a, any civic association out there? Look at verse six. This is the, the quote from Micah, the prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will, be, who will shepherd my people. This answers the question, what kind of king is Jesus? What kind of ruler is it? And then maybe a deeper question is why is it good news? Why, why is it good news that he came? Why would the Magi want to leave what is known, embrace danger, and surrender before King Jesus? It's because he is not just a king, he's a shepherd king. And just think with me for a minute. 
how does Jesus, as the king of God's people, who's also their shepherd, how does that explain what type of king he is? Think, think about what a shepherd does. A shepherd's job is to see his flock of sheep what? Thrive, flourish, multiply, lay down in green pastures, as the psalmist says. They shall not want. In John 10, Jesus builds on this theme of him as a shepherd. In verse 10 of chapter 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill, steal and, kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who comes to give us life abundantly. This is the kind of king he is. This is the, the kind of ruler he is. With the, the tenderness of a shepherd. The, the, the connection with his flock to where he's not trying to get rich off his flock or get stuff from his flock. He's trying to give himself for his flock. Give us a life abundant where forgiveness is possible, where freedom from anxiety is possible. Uh, It's a reality we can live into now. In order to do that, what what does Jesus do, according to John 10? The exact opposite of King Herod. Herod thought to kill babies in order to protect himself. But Jesus, the good shepherd, does what? allows himself to be killed to protect us. We come running to surrender and sacrifice to the king because he has come to sacrifice himself for us so that you can have the abundant life that God designed for you to have. Jesus is the shepherd king who literally loves you to death. He wants to know you, to offer healing for your wounds, your hurts, your trauma, some of which maybe happened in a church. He wants to offer you safety that cannot be touched by circumstances. He wants to empower you with his Holy Spirit to take courage, engage in the world uh, from a place that's like a sheep flourishing in his care. Jesus also says, His sheep follow him because they know his voice. Do you hear his voice this morning? I'm inviting you to follow him, which is kind of the invitation to be a sheep. It's Christmas Eve, coming into a week that could be busy for us, seeing family members we may not see all the time, all our normal rhythms that keep us sane, disrupted by holiday hoopla. So this week, when that thing happens, when your mother-in-law says that thing again, when your brother starts ranting, when your kids melt down and you want to cancel Christmas, <laughs> speaking for a friend, <clears throat> I want to invite you to do what might be the hardest thing, which is to run to your shepherd. Like a scared, needy sheep, get alone with your shepherd. Maybe that's going down to the basement, to a comfy chair, getting some space. Or maybe you put on a warm coat You know they make those, right? You don't have to wear a hoodie when it's 25 degrees outside. Put on a warm coat and go outside for a slow walk and just tell Jesus how much you hurt, how much it's not right, how much this person drives you crazy. And ask him to be your shepherd. 
Ask him to care for you, to heal you. And see what he says. What if our first response to pain wasn't to, to medicate, you know, to numb it with our phones or our food, but to say, mom's gotta go for a walk. Tell your spouse that you need to get alone with Jesus. Because Jesus, the good shepherd, doesn't promise that he'll keep us out of the valley of the shadow of death. He just promises to be with us in it, to be with us in our pain. The good news of Christmas is that we don't have to wander around in darkness. We don't have to be weary and heavy laden. We have a shepherd king who came to lead us, to love us, to heal us, to teach us how to live, to restore our souls. So the invitation for us is will we receive the gift of Jesus this year? Let me pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for King Jesus. In a world that feels so chaotic, competing narratives, competing political philosophies, it's just overwhelming. We pray that you would open our hearts to see the good news that Jesus is the true king. He's the king who came to give his life for us as the good shepherd. Father, would you fill us with your spirit as we consider what it is you might be calling us to turn away from in order to turn to Jesus? What kind of subtraction needs to happen in our lives as we seek to make room uh, for Jesus to be our king? Father, would you fill us with your spirit as we go into the holiday hoopla? Uh, would we be people of joy and love, people of patience and kindness? Would you give us uh, the courage to get a time alone with you when we need to be cared for by our shepherd? And Father, we just pray that we would be a people who follow King Jesus together uh, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.